Scripture reading this evening comes from 2 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. And if you're following along in your Pew Bible, you can find that on page 1018. 2 Peter chapter 2, and I'll be reading the first six verses, but we'll particularly be paying attention to the first three. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be blasphemed. And in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Their condemnation from long ago is not idle, and their destruction is not asleep. For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell, and committed them to chains of gloomy darkness to be kept until the judgment, if he did not spare the ancient world, but preserved Noah, a herald of righteousness with seven others, when he brought a flood upon the world of the ungodly. If by turning the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah to ashes, he condemned them to extinction, making them an example of what is going to happen to the ungodly. This is the word of the Lord. About a month ago, uh, we got my son Lyle a bunk bed and It's an Ikea bunk bed. And as some of you probably know, with Ikea furniture, you buy all the parts separately and then you assemble it at home. So I had picked up this bunk bed secondhand from someone who had it mostly disassembled, but with a few key pieces still assembled. And so I thought to myself, you know, this this isn't rocket science guy, I don't need instructions, I can figure this out. And I was very, very wrong. And following the devices of my own heart led to catastrophe. Frustration ensued. Here I am thinking, I've finished the job and the bunk bed is upside down. I mean, how do you, how do you even assemble a bunk bed upside down? And so with my injured pride, I I proceed to go to the IKEA website, print off the IKEA manual, and follow the instructions. And the end result was a bed that was right side up, that was functional, safe, how it was designed to be. Now why do I tell you this story? Well, because what I want us to see this evening is that Deviating from design leads to disorder. Deviating from design leads to disorder. When I deviated from the design of the bunk bed and I disregarded the instruction manual, the result was disorder. And when it comes to our lives, when we deviate from God's good design and when we disregard his instruction manual, for our lives, the result is 
disorder. And not only does does deviating from God's design set forth in his word, not only does it lead to disorder, but as we see in our text this evening, it leads to destruction. You see, the Bible is given as a blueprint for our lives. It's a divine instruction manual given to us by God. And this is what we saw at the end of 2 Peter chapter one. That scripture shines as a beacon of light that guides us as we walk. That the Bible is not some myth or fable or some cunning invention of mankind or or some human compilation of wise sayings. No, rather, the Bible is divinely spoken. These are divine words that, that are written by human authors who were carried along by the Holy Spirit. But as we see in our text this evening, false prophets and false teachers will deviate from the truth. They will deviate from the truth of God's word. They will seek to deceive God's people. They will seek to deceive you, to bring destruction and disorder upon the household of God. So this evening I wanna focus just on the first three verses of chapter two and and we will see the destruction and the disorder that accompanies false teaching. And we will see how our only hope is in the resurrection life that accompanies the true teacher, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Well firstly, let's begin by looking at the nature of false teachers. In verse one, the apostle Peter begins by saying, but false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you. Now in the original Bible manuscripts, there are no chapters and verses. And this should bring you some consolation if you've ever been reading successive chapters and verses and you've been scratching your head thinking, how does this relate to the immediate context? Sometime around the 1400s, since uh, the time of the Wycliffe Bible, we've had standardized, standardized chapters and verses to help us quickly locate and find scripture. But sometimes they confuse us uh, as we see how one passage connects to others around it. Well, there's a, there's a very significant connection between the end of chapter one and the beginning of chapter two, and I don't want us to gloss over this. The, the Apostle Peter is pointedly and purposefully making a very sharp contrast for us. The false prophecy of chapter two is a counterfeit of the true prophecy that he's just explained at the end of chapter one. Right, there is is true objective teaching at the end of chapter one and there is false distorted teaching at the beginning of chapter two. There is God's word, end of chapter one, and there is the devil's word, beginning of chapter two. And what God is calling us to do this evening is to reject the false teaching, 
because false teaching originates in the lies of our enemy, in the father of lies. And so we must cling to the God of all truth and comfort. It's important that we understand something very basic about what false teaching is uh, from the outset. The apostle Peter tells us in verse one that false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Now in the Greek, the word for heresy simply means choice. And we now use, use the word heresy to refer to teaching or doctrine that is outside the bounds of orthodoxy, right? Teaching or doctrine that denies the Bible, teaching or doctrine that is outside the fundamentals of the faith. But the original meaning of this word provides us, I think, with a, a, a very profound insight. Destructive heresies are a matter of personal choice, of sinful choice. It, get, it gets right to the heart of the matter. It, it is our own sin that often blinds us to the truth of God's word. It, it is our own sin that often causes us to deviate from his perfect will. And so in that sense, all of our sin is heresy. Every sin that we commit is a heresy because when we sin, we are choosing falsehood over the truth. Now to our ears, if you've been brought up in the church or you've studied uh, the reformed tradition, when you hear heresy, uh, your mind probably goes to the early church. We think about the Apostles' Creed, which was confessed in, in, in response to heresies that plagued the early church, right? There, there were those who denied the divinity of Jesus Christ. There were others who taught that the God of the New Testament was different from the God of the Old Testament, that the God of the Old Testament was wrathful, the God of the New Testament was loving. And these heresies were condemned by the early church. But as Peter reminds us in verse one, in every period of the church until Christ returns, false teachers will continue their assault. They will continue their assault to deceive, to ensnare, and Peter appeals to the history of Israel. He says, just as false prophets arose among them to, to deceive Israel, speaking of the history in the Old Testament, so they will continue to, to rise up and deceive the new Israel, the Israel of God. And as agents of our enemy, they will resort to his playbook where we would do well to pay close attention to the adjective that Peter uses in verse one. These false teachers will secretly bring in destructive heresies. Right? Peter doesn't say that they will be loud and proud and obnoxious. No, they will secretly try to infiltrate the church of Jesus Christ with, with subtle distortions of the truth. And this is where they 
employ the playbook of our enemy. Remember how the serpent in Genesis chapter three seeks to to very subtly undermine the authority of God's word. Did God really say? Did he really say? Did he really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God really mean that when he said that? Does God really care about your happiness? Does God really want what's best for you? And so, brothers and sisters, we must be on guard because our enemy seeks to slightly, just ever so slightly twist the word of God. And this is why we must remember that a half-truth is a whole lie. That all half-truth, that any distortion of the truth of God's word is untruth. As one famous German physicist put it, the most dangerous untruths are truths moderately distorted. You see, our enemy delights in in repackaging God's word and presenting us with half truths that, that twist the whole truth of what God has said. And how do we know if we're being fed falsehood? How, how, do, we, how do we know? What, what's the smell test for half truth? Well, the answer is that we look to the scriptures. We look to the whole counsel of God's word. We look to what God has said definitively and objectively. And we need a steady diet of God's word in order to identify what what is a, a slight distortion of his word. Now there's an important parallel between what Peter says here in verse one and something the Apostle Paul says to the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me uh, to Acts chapter 20. And you'll see Paul writes this as a charge to the Ephesian elders. He says this beginning at verse 27, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And then he goes on to say, I I commend you to God and to the word of his grace which is able to build you up. Paul says this in response to the reality that fierce wolves will come in and seek to devour the flock. And so brothers and sisters, we must never forget that we do not simply live in a material world. 
We are also spiritual beings who, who live in a spiritual world. We are caught up in a great conflict as, as Paul sets forth in Acts chapter 20. We are in the midst of a cosmic battle between good and evil, between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. Even though Jesus has already delivered the defeating blow in his resurrection from the dead, we await his final coming. And while we wait, our enemy is still kicking while he's down. Through false teachers, whom Paul calls fierce wolves in Acts chapter 20, the devil will seek to destroy the church. He delights in in attempting to destroy the church. And this is why our church fathers have spoken about the church in two distinct stages or eras. There is the church militant and there is the church triumphant. We are in the period of the church militant. We are engaged right now in spiritual warfare. And we will be engaged in spiritual warfare until Christ returns like a thief in the night. And only then when he returns to summon his people to himself, only then when he returns will we become the church triumphant. Our battle will be over and we will receive the crown of life. Now in this present age, in in the age of the church militant, while we still await glory, we do have sure promises. Though fierce wolves will seek to devour us, Jesus promises that the gates of hell shall not prevail against his church. And that is a promise that we can hang our coats on, that we can stake our very lives on. And God has actually provided his church, we see in his word, God provides his church with shepherds, with elders, as a means of of guarding and protecting and, and shepherding his flock guarding them from fierce wolves that will come in and seek to devour them from false teachers. So we need to pray for the elders of our church. We need to pray for the elders of 10th. We need to pray for the elders of faithful churches all around Philadelphia. We need to pray for elders of faithful churches all around the world who are called to this task of defending the flock from fierce wolves. Elders are simply under shepherds of the chief shepherd. But the calling that they have been given is to guide and to protect the sheep that God entrusts them with. And so here's a simple application for you. We are a Presbyterian church, which means that we have a certain polity We do things decently and and in good order, as we should. And you as a congregation, you elect your elders and you call your ministers. And so ask yourself, what is it that you prize in an elder? What is it that you prize in a man of God? Is it what God prizes? Is it what God looks for? 
In part, this is also how we avoid having false teachers come in and and rise up among you to, to positions of elder within the church. The world values charisma in a leader. The world values capability in a leader. But you know what God values in a leader? What is it that God values above all else? God values character. God values character. If you look at 1 Timothy 3, please turn with me there. Paul sets forth the qualifications for an elder in the church of Jesus Christ. And the vast majority of these have to do with the character of the man of God. Listen to what Paul says, right? An elder must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well, with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. Now Paul, in 1 Timothy 3, he lists 15 qualifications. And of these 15, strictly speaking, only one qualification has to do with competence. The other 14 all have to do with character. And so we see that God God prizes godliness over giftedness. God is more concerned about the godliness of an elder than his gifting. And so I would encourage you to take the same approach when when we think about leadership, not only when it comes to elders, but in any area of our church. And even when we call our next senior pastor, Lord willing, are we looking for giftedness? Or are we looking for godliness? Are we looking for character as God looks for character? Are we looking for competence? May we be a church that commits to praying for faithful elders, godly elders, men of character. Now the last thing that you need to take note of in chapter two is in verse one. And there's been some confusion throughout the history of interpretation on on how Peter could say that false teachers can deny the master who bought them. Right, doesn't that seem to deny the doctrine of limited atonement that we find in scripture? Doesn't this verse seem to suggest that Christ's blood was shed for the non-elect. Well, the way that the reformers have understood this verse is that Peter here is not speaking about 
salvation, but rather he's speaking analogically. It's not that Christ has bought them in a salvific way with his blood. No, Peter is using the analogy of a master and a slave. In other words, since God has created all people, he owns all people. He possesses the right to all people, both the elect and the reprobate, both those whom he shed his blood for and those who will face his judgment. Now in verse two, Peter further explores the methods of false teachers. False teachers will try to ensnare God's people through sensuality, the text says. Sensuality. Some of you may not be familiar with that word. We don't use it often. But sensuality in the Bible simply refers to gratifying our fleshly desires, our fleshly pleasures. Whether it be sexual pleasure or gluttony or greed, sensuality is, is giving in to the, the things that are opposed to the spirit. It's giving in to the things of the flesh. And as we see in Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse three, God is still sovereign even in the midst of false teachers. God still uses the evil, the the, the sensuality of false prophets and teachers to test us, to refine his people. We read this in Deuteronomy chapter 13. Uh, We read this, that you shall not listen to the words of that prophet or that dreamer of dreams, for the Lord your God is testing you. He's testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. He, he sovereignly even uses what man intends for evil. He, he uses it for his good. He uses it to refine us to sanctify us, to test us, to see if we will persevere. God is never the author of evil, but he's always in control. Well, Peter also warns us that false teachers will be popular. Many will follow them, we see in verse two. Truth is never determined by how popular it is, or by its novelty. Rather, for the Christian truth is derived from a word that is itself unchanging. One of my favorite Reformed theologians, Herman Bovink, once said that the Bible, the, the, the scriptures, he said the scriptures are eternally youthful. And what he meant by that is, is that scripture speaks afresh in an ever-changing world. The culture changes, empires rise and fall, but God's word remains constant. And the only way for us to maintain the way of truth is to build our lives on the word of God, the unchanging word, the word that is eternally youthful, ever afresh. 
Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter seven that, that when we build our lives on his words, it's like building a house upon a rock on a firm foundation when the rains come, when the floods come, when the winds hammer against the house. That house remains secure and anchored. But if we build our lives on half-truths, when, when the rain comes, when the floods come, when the winds hammer against our walls, we will be destroyed. If we build our lives on the sand. And sadly, many will fall away and be destroyed, says Peter. Many will blaspheme the way of truth, verse two. And John Calvin writes that there is nothing that disturbs godly minds so much as defection. Defection which means deserting from Christ. And he goes on to say to prevent this from destroying our faith, Peter interposes with the timely prediction that this very thing will happen. When we see people who are claiming to be Christians, when we see them live as hypocrites, we are rightly grieved, we are rightly saddened. We're saddened for the honor and the name of Christ. But we can take comfort in the promise that we find in Galatians chapter six, that God will not be mocked. God will not be mocked. God sees every misdeed. He knows all of our misdeeds. He knows my misdeeds. He knows your misdeeds. And God will render each, God will render to each according to his works at the end of the age. And in verse three, we see that the end of false teachers is sure that if they do not repent, they will face eternal judgment. They will face ultimate destruction. They will pay for their exploitation and for every false word. One of the great false teachings that the church faces today is relativism. Truth is relative, feelings are relative, morality is relative, there are no absolutes, there is no objective truth. And we see this in the church seep into our thinking. We, we see it even when it comes to interpreting the Bible. We are often quick to say, well, I feel that this text means this to me. And while we certainly affirm that the Holy Spirit illuminates our hearts and applies God's word to us in, in fresh ways as we read it, we also affirm that there is a singular one sense of scripture. As our Westminster Confession of Faith puts it in chapter one, the true and full sense of any scripture is not manifold, but one. And this is very important as we live in what I would call a post-truth age. We no longer live in a postmodern age, but, but a post-truth age. And those scriptures, the word of God, which is 
eternally youthful, which is ever relevant, has an eternally true message. Another great error that we see today in the church is is not just an apathy, but a distaste for doctrine. We're often inclined to create this false dichotomy between the doctrines that we find in scripture and experiential faith. And the reality is that we need both, right? We need both. We can't privilege one over the other. Yes, the demons know lots of doctrine about God and and they do shudder, but they don't have faith. They don't have experiential faith. So we know that it's not enough to just know things about God. But it is also not enough to just have a, a blind faith in a deity that we know nothing about. And furthermore, we, we cannot claim to have a living faith and then have a, a strong disdain for the object of our faith. Jesus says in John chapter 17, verse three, this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. You see, eternal life is both experiential faith and knowledge of the true and living God. I pray that we would yearn to grow in the knowledge of the one who has shed his blood for us and and not relegate the knowledge of him to the realm of impractical. Well, as we come to a close this evening, I want to come back to something I mentioned at the beginning, which is that in one sense, all sin is heresy. Because all sin, every sin that you and I commit is false belief about who God is. We often think about false teaching as something out there. And, that, and it certainly is. And we certainly need to, to be on guard and to protect the purity and peace of Christ's church. But we also need to be on guard against the false teaching within our own hearts. Ask yourself, what what are the lies that I've allowed myself to believe this week? What are the things, what what are the voices that I've paid more attention to that have presented half-truths about who I am and about who God is rather than submit myself to what God says about who I am and about who he is in his word? Have we believed the lie that we would simply be happier if God just gave us more, if our families loved us more, if if our spouse respected us more, if our coworkers, if our boss respected us more? Do we question whether God still really even cares about us? Do we believe the lie that we would just be satisfied if, if we give into that sin just one more time. We just have more satisfaction. Friends, though we are all self-deceived by distortions of God's truth, we are called and we must run to the Father 
and confess our sins because we know we have an advocate with the Father. We have an advocate, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has shed his blood so that you and I might be presented as spotless and as without blemish. And we know that we can find forgiveness from our sins. And it is only, it is only by walking in the light of confession, by walking out our repentance, by bearing fruit in keeping with our repentance that we will find safety for our souls, that we will find safety from the lies that our enemy seeks to tell us. There is no safety in hiding from our sin like our first parents did after they were deceived. There's no safety. There's no safety there in hiding. And I know my own heart. I know that this is our inclination to hide, to run, to flee. But God's word tells us to flee to Christ. And listen to the promise of the gospel in 1 John chapter one, and we'll end here. 1 John chapter one, verses six to seven. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and we do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, what a comfort and a joy it is to know that we are forgiven. What a joy it is to experience the alleviating sense of knowing that our sins are forgiven that our transgressions are removed from us as far as the east is from the west. And so, Lord, I pray that this week you would help us to identify the half-truths that we've believed, the slight distortions of your word, O Lord. We pray that your Holy Spirit would convict us where we need to be convicted and that we would flee into the arms of our Savior who is faithful and just indeed to save us from all unrighteousness. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake, amen.